As we read from chapter 6 of the Gospel of Mark, we look at one of four of the early church, their um, biographies of the life and times and the ministry of Jesus Christ. We've been studying these Gospels as a community, looking at what does it mean for us today? What does it mean for us to receive Jesus as a historical person with a real message for our real lives? And what does it mean to follow him? That's what we've been looking at in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to continue looking at this morning in chapter 6. Of verse 30. And so we're going to jump right in today and read, and then uh, we'll, we'll begin to see uh, what the Spirit's inviting us into. And so Mark 6, beginning in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going. They had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to the desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When they went ashore, he saw the great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them to eat? And he said to him, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups of the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And he broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. They took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately, he being Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before them to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And so, let's pray. Uh, Father, we uh, stand before your word, and we ask that you uh, today would satisfy us. Coming from our week, um, it's very easy for us to feel like sheep without a shepherd, um, that we've just been running from thing to thing. And so right here and right now, we center ourselves on your word, and we ask that you would speak to us today. God, would you uh, use uh, me, use the meditations uh, of my heart, God, what you've been speaking to me over this week to now overflow into what you might be calling us to as a community. Speak to us today. Amen. Amen. So, Mark, like all of the authors of the Bible, Christians believe are not only uh, spirit-inspired authors, um, but also literary ninjas. Often what they do is they load words and themes with meaning beyond simple history or geography. There's a reason the Bible continues as the number one bestseller, and it goes just beyond it simply being a religious work. It is a masterpiece of narrative and literature. And today we're going to continue what we did last week, looking at one particular example of this master storytelling, where three times in what we just read, verse 31, verse 32, and verse 35, Mark, or, or John Mark, the author of this gospel, refers to this desolate place. This desolate place. The Greek that he's writing in is this Greek word, eremos. Can you say eremos? 
Eremos. You're learning Greek. Look at that. You made it through everything, and now you're learning Greek. This word Eremos, which we translate uh, in this English translation that we have, the ESV in front of us, as uh, the solitary place, um, can also be translated as the wilderness, or my favorite is the quiet place. And what we've been looking at over the past few weeks is how for Mark, when he talks about the Eremos, the wilderness, the solitary place, when he talks about uh, the quiet place, he's talking about far more than geography. He's actually talking about this intentional space where Jesus and his disciples get alone with God and their own souls. It's a practice that has been gone on within church history to be referred to as silence and solitude or even quiet time uh, in, in recent years. And for Mark, this aremos, this language of talking about this intentional space is integral to the whole layout of his story. Behind me is a map of the gospel of Mark. Mark, uh, as many Bible nerds have pointed out over the past 2,000 years, has a really clean three-act movement where each act is developing the theme and theories of who Jesus is and what it means to be his disciple. In Act 1, Jesus' ministry in and around the Sea of Galilee is all around the question, who is Jesus? In Act 2, the question is, what does it mean for Jesus to be king? And that gets developed while they're on the road specifically to Jerusalem. In Act 3, we finally find out what does it mean for Jesus to be king and how does he become king? And it's through what happens on Passover weekend in Jerusalem where we find the king is inaugurated. He takes his throne through his crucifixion and subsequent resurrection. There's a three-part movement. And one thing that other fun Bible nerds have pointed out is how at these integral moments, these transition points between each act, kind of like a commercial break, as it were, he gives these little moments where Jesus gets away to the Eremos, to a quiet place to pray. It is what opens up the next part of the story. And in fact, the next part of the story has deep connections to what happened in silence and solitude in the Eremos place. And so what we looked at last week was Jesus getting away for prayer in the quiet place, specifically finding a renewal of who he is and what God was calling him to as his Messiah. And then what we go into this week is Jesus, once again, now going into the quiet place, now with his disciples, not for renewal, but for rest. And so he develops this theme of rest that connects to what does it mean for Jesus to be king. Next week, we're going to be in Mark 14, where Jesus prays, uh, not in the Eremos, but in Gethsemane, this garden, where Jesus once again gets alone with the Father, not for renewal, not for rest, but to relinquish, to let go. And so this is how Mark has developed the whole book. And so what we've been doing is looking at each of these three little silence and solitude commercial breaks and allowing Mark not only to help us see Jesus and how important this practice was for him, but what it means for it to be a practice for us as well. Sound good? This is where we are. So this week we're looking at rest, looking at this angle of rest. And so a roadmap specifically for chapter 6, where we're at today. As we're going to look at, in verses 30 through 32, Jesus displaying a rhythm of rest. In 33 and 34, and then at 45 and 46, a realism or the reality of rest. And then finally, in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, we find the test of rest. So the rhythm, the reality, and the test of rest. And so let's go back to the beginning of the story in chapter 6, where we look at this rhythm of rest. Chapter 6 and verse 30 picks up, and we are months to a year away from where we were last year. Where last year, Jesus, last year, last week, excuse me, uh, feels like that sometimes. Uh, 
Well, last week, Jesus was um, away by himself, about to kick off his ministry into Galilee, and the disciples come, and we find Jesus with a renewed vision for who he is in this mission to Galilee that God had sent him on. And what we find in chapter 6, here we are a few months ahead, is uh, Jesus is making disciples. Not only are they being with him, but in the beginning of chapter 6, they're doing what Jesus did. He sends them out to preach the kingdom. He teaches um, in verse, you can look at it in 6, 7 through 13 if you want to where Jesus calls the 12 disciples, the apostles to him. He gives them authority over unclean spirits. He charges them to go and to preach the arrival of the kingdom, to cast out demons and heal the sick. So Jesus has disciples who, out of being with him, he's now sending to do what he did. It's almost like it's integral to what we mean when we talk about discipleship. And so these guys have had an incredibly productive and crazy busy uh, period of ministry that Jesus has sent them on. So much so, he says in verse 32, they didn't have a chance to eat. How, moms, are you with me? Right? Or even just like, every, that's everybody, right? Like I, there's days of the week where you just get in that zone, you're getting work done, and you're like, lunch, oh yeah, and it's, you're already eating dinner. <laughs> like You're like, I didn't even eat lunch today. And so Jesus gathers these disciples up in all of their busyness, and he wants to debrief how the ministry went. Obviously, probably a mix of celebration and critique, right? Where um, he's celebrating, you know, so-and-so, preaching the gospel. Peter, you did such a good job. You know, great job. Judas, like, you got to step it up, man. Like, you can't hit people. Like, that's not how ministry is done here. Uh, there's probably a good mix of that. But then it builds up to Jesus saying in verse 31, what it's time now for is for us to come away, for you guys to come away by yourselves, come away to the desolate place, the quiet place, and I want you to rest a while. And this seems to be set apart from a weekly rhythm of Sabbath, of rest that Jesus and his disciples um, as Jewish men would practice. There seems to be a rest even aside from or, or different to Sabbath, where they go to a quiet place. You see, for Jesus, the Eremos, the quiet place, for him is the setting of rest, rejuvenation, of renewal and peace. The Eremos is a good place for Jesus, which is quite different for us because the quiet place for us is the setting of a horror movie. <laughs> rest in peace, Jim Halpert. Um, so this, and, and I watched this movie on Friday, um, the, it embodies many of the same things that actually we've been studying. The whole movie is actually about the deep need for silence in the middle of a world that feeds off noise. But that's another teaching. Um, the thing that's scarier than monsters with super hearing is actually the silence itself. As Aaron and I were watching this movie, the thing that was so scary was not the monsters, but was the silent moments where you don't know what's gonna happen. And silence gets weird. You see, my wife and I, we spent our, um, most of our first year of marriage uh, living in Seattle. I was interning at a church there, and so we had this um, tiny little like 300 square foot um, apartment that was um, a basement of a part, like a normal apartment complex where all the normal people lived. And then there were cars that you could pull down and like park underneath the apartment complex. On the left side, there was a door that opened up to the washer and dryer area for everybody to use. On the other side was our apartment. <laughs> and so we had like little tiny windows that were like literally growing mold on my books that I stacked up there. And we were right next to the road. So there was constant noise living um, right in the middle of Seattle. And uh, after being there um, for nine months, we ended up moving back to Missouri for me to finish up school. And for the first night, uh, we stayed at my parents' house before we could get into our new place in the middle of Nixa, Missouri. 
um, where Jason Bourne is from. Him and I hail from the same city. <laughs> so take, take heed. Um, and it was so crazy being in Nixa, Missouri, in my, my you know, bedroom that I grew up in, uh, now married. It was kind of like a weird thing, like, you're not supposed to be here. Um, but as we laid down and everybody went to bed, um, there was a sensation that overcame both of us where our ears began to hurt. We could not sleep because it was too quiet. There was actually a discomfort and pain that as our ears had gotten synced up to the constant noise of Seattle, that then when you got away to actually like healthy silence away from everything, our ears, it was like a ringing, like reverberating sound. And, and it was, we, you could, we could not sleep because of the noise. There's a scary reality that happens when our souls get synced, not just our ears, but our souls get synced up to an urban, urban and never-stopping, productive and fast-paced city like Los Angeles, where we can actually, over time, get a spiritual noise-induced hearing loss, experiences exhaustion, anxiety, depression, and burnout, synced up to work, 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 that when things finally stop long enough, we find compulsivity and anxiety that comes out because we don't know how to stop. Jesus displays himself and invites his disciples, not into some rhythm of always working, but rhythm of work and rest, as natural as breathing itself, that goes all the way back to the first pages of the Bible. See, in Genesis 1, we find in the beginning, God worked. God created and ordered a good world that is built upon equal and complementary pairs. If you go back and read the first chapter of Genesis this week, you find these equal complementary pairs of earth and sea, of sky and earth, of light and dark, of sun and moon, of night and day, of male and female. And on the seventh day, God makes the final complementary pair of rest and work. From page one of the Bible, the story of our world that, that, that Christianity and going back even further that Judaism is telling is the story of a good God who made a good world and desires to partner with humans as royal representatives in continuing forming and filling a good world, a partnership of both rest and work. This is a far cry from the other ancient uh, creation stories of the ancient Near East where the world began with two gods at war and, and the world that we live on down here is actually the corpse of a killed god and humans, you and me, are slaves. It's a very different story than in the beginning, God, like a craftsman, began to create a good world and order it and he wants to partner with human beings to continue his creating work. And it all goes down the proverbial toilet, however, on page three, where though we were created for this partnership of work and rest with God, we distrusted God. This partnership was broken. And what happened is this didn't stop humanity's work and our labor. We just deified it. We made it a God. You see, in the absence of our partnership with God, we uh, turn to many other things to take his place, whether that's ourselves, whether that's a political system, whatever that might be. But in a city like Los Angeles, one of our favorites is the God of work that becomes a sort of religion itself, where each day we delight in the Holy Trinity of hustle, hurry, and productivity. We spend our time meditating on the sacred scriptures of make time, sprint, crushing it, or getting things done. We raise our productivity prayers to the heavenly cloud of reminders, things, Evernote, or Asana. We sacrifice 
on the altar of work, our sanity, our time, and our attention. In the past, it looked like late hours at the office. Now it looks like we carry a device in our pockets that we are always acceptable. We are always on. We are always available for work. I was talking to someone that's newer to the community, got here around the same time that I did, um, who's kind of investigating the Jesus stuff, and he just recently came out of a job and one of the reasons he left was because the, the pull that them needing him always on, always available, his phone had to be like by his bedside. He couldn't go five minutes without checking it, was exhausting for him. And so many of us, it may not be always on, but it's most of our waking hours. And it's exhausting. It's a sort of work worship. And the thing is, is that this, work of, this worship of work even breaks our leisure, our, our rest. Jenny O'Dell, in her incredible book, uh, she's by no means a believer, uh, but she wrote a, this book called How to Do Nothing, uh, Resisting the Attention Economy. And in it, she says that um, when everything becomes work, even our leisure now, our, our vacation time has become work, where we uh, take pictures and submit what we're doing for leisure for numerical evaluation via likes on Facebook and Instagram. Constantly checking on their performance like someone checks in on their stocks. We're always working now. You can't find a replacement of this God, uh, this work worship, more explicit than in the company Fiverr's uh, recent advertising campaign, Endures We Trust. Uh, This is one of the billboards that they've had around um, major cities. You eat coffee for lunch. You follow through on follow through. Sleep deprivation is your drug of choice. You might be a doer. And then Fiverr's logo, and then underneath, endures we trust. You see, we live in this ambient anxiety of always going, putting our trust not in some God who requires us to trust, but in ourself, our gumption, our ability to get things done, our ability to get it in the, you know, the Pomodoro technique, to get the inbox zero, whatever it might be, that peace will come when I do. And so what we end up doing is we sing the worship songs of our mechanical overlords, Daft Punk. <laughs> where we sing as like a worship mantra each morning, work it harder, do it faster, more than ever. Our work is never over. And so we have a whole world, a whole city that's exhausted ourselves into burnout. And so when we exhaust ourselves and we find that the work is actually not a good but malevolent God, then we run to the God of rest. We go for vacation. We go for what I need is a night um, with Postmates and, and Chinese food. What I need is a, a, a self-care technique. And so we spend as Amer- Americans $11 billion with a B dollars in self-care. So we sign up for goat yoga. And maybe this will be the thing that realigns me back into a life where I actually enjoy myself. And the thing is, is whether it's the devil or late stage capitalism, they are happy to keep us in this loop of idolatry, of working ourselves into exhaustion and then spending all of our money trying to get rest. And so we go around the cul-de-sac day over day, year over year, and whether it's Satan himself or some big, you know, 1%, whoever it is, they are happy for us to continue in this slavery. We desperately need to recapture what Genesis establishes as the portrait of human flourishing and what Jesus himself similarly displays here in Mark 6, that there's a good God who desires to partner with people in both work and rest. And not with you as slaves, but as partners, working with you, resting with you. If none of you hear anything else today, it might just be at the deepest level 
that the invitation of the God of Christianity, the God who reveals himself in Jesus, is the God who looks at you and says, let's get away together. Let's go to a quiet place and rest. That's what you really need. And so in verse 32, we find that the disciples hop into a boat with Jesus. They push off from shore, and they make their way up to the Sea of Galilee. They go to rest. For us today, we're invited through the Spirit of God and His presence connecting us to God uh, to daily uh, place ourselves in what Jesus calls in John 15, abiding in Him, resting and delighting in the Spirit and the love of the Father. This is one of the aspects of silence and solitude. The practice of getting away is so that we might posture our souls, not simply just to rest with God, but rest so that we might go into our days from a posture of partnership with God where we see him working with us and in us, that we are attentive to Jesus in the morning so that we might be attentive to him in partnership with him during our work. And so beginning a day or having this at the end of our day is simply meant to be a compass setting for the rest of our days, learning to go about our work in partnership with God, seeing ourselves as divinely made image bearers sent out into the world to form and fill, whether that is bringing stories and movies into our world, crafting and creating food and drink, working within hospitality or the service industry, healing through medicine, ordering our world like God did with the complementary pairs through design or through education, or through raising children, whatever it might be, you are tasked with a forming and filling work that God desires to partner with you in to make this a better world where humans flourish more. You see, God feeds, he cares for, he heals, he teaches, God welcomes and serves, God delights, God even entertains through his fingertips or you and me. And so that what happens when humans start to break off from that partnership is, of course, we find the chaos in the world that we have today. But when you have people that are committed in their workplace to finding how they can partner with God, this is how things begin to get turned over. But that's a conversation for another time. Because we're invited to give ourselves, give the work of our hands as we're attentive to God's presence with each email that we write, each latte that we steam, each diaper that we change. And the great thing about this is that God doesn't simply only want to partner in our vocation, but even in our leisure, not for the sake of work, even in the activity of our days, the things that doesn't feel like work or leisure just feels like it is. One of my um, best friends, uh, Mike, he was a pastor in, or he was, he is a pastor in Reno at the church that, that we were at before we joined Collective. Um, he's been working on a book of prayers specifically to bring our attention back, not like in the work or in the rest periods, but in the middle places of our day. Prayers for going to sleep, prayers for when we're in the shower, when we're doing the dishes, even when we're walking, the dog is one of my favorites. And here's the one he wrote for a prayer for when we're driving. God, as I go there from here to there, I find myself in between, en route. Remind me that life is a journey and that my destination is the new creation. Help me to obey life's speed limit, slow and steady, and it will be a nice drive. Amen. Imagine what would happen if everybody in Los Angeles would just like pray this every now and then. <laughs> Revival would break out in the streets, right? Um, and so something as simple as that, like, is just what, what, what's going on in Pastor Mike there and, and, and other stories is beginning to find ways to bring our attention back to God in a busy world. Because the response of Jesus is not simply to go into the wilderness and stay there. 
but that we come back with that presence now with us and empowering us. And that's what leads us into the reality of rest. In verse 33 is, I, I, I just, I laugh at how funny the Bible is sometimes. And this is one of my favorite examples. So think about this. Just imagine sitting in the boat as, you know, Peter or whatever, he pushes off and he hops in. You know, they're all waving to the giant crowd of people. Bye. Like, thanks for making us very tired. We'll see you later. Like, we're going to go take a break, right? And so all the disciples begin to take a deep breath. Matthew kind of leans back, you know, closes his eyes. James and John are talking. Judas is like smoking a cigarette or something. <laughs> Peter's got a fishing pole, which he wouldn't have a fishing pole, but that is what comes to mind. You know, they're just, they're, they're on their way to the rest place and everybody's kind of settling in. And Peter throws, you know, the fishing line out and, and he looks on the horizon back towards the beach and he sees this cloud of like dust moving with them. And he's like, guys, <laughs> what's that? And all these guys, like, they're watching in this moment the rest that they were like, woohoo, vacation. And it's just like growing. It says that people start coming from the surrounding towns. And they're just, they're watching their vacation, they're watching rest dissolve in front of them. And so, like, James just starts crying and he's like rocking in the back of the boat. Matthew's rubbing his eyes like he thinks he's dreaming. Judas is shouting Aramaic four letter words across the waters. (laughs) Simon's just like, oh my God. And Jesus is like, what? It's a good joke. Come on, it's a dad joke. <laughs> Just disqualified myself. I love, okay. I, I love stories like these because it reveals something to us. That not only are we dealing with like, this actually happens on a daily basis to all of us. This is so real. How many of you over the past week, as you've begun maybe to practice silence and solitude, like you get up, you get the coffee or whatever, you're get, you know, it's nighttime and you're about to get ready for bed, you settle in and right as you do, this happened to me yesterday, right as you do, you settle in, begin to pray, maybe you open your Bible or you're just kind of thinking over the day and your neighbor gets a chainsaw out <laughs> and you're just like, okay, you know, and you're like, I'm going to try anyway, you know. And then, you know, there's a bird. And the birds are nice normally, but this one's decided that he's going to sit right outside of your window and scream at you. <laughs> and then your toddler wakes up, and you're just like, this, I don't know why I try this, right? Like, this is a waste of my time. And, and this is exactly what happens to Jesus. There's leaf blowers and toddlers. There are roommates that come in because they just got broken up with. And you're like, I was trying to have, like, a Jesus moment, right? <laughs> or emergencies. Or you were positive that you put your phone on do not disturb. But if somebody calls your phone twice on do not disturb, it still goes through. And so, you know, somebody better be bleeding. And it's just like, oh, my gosh, have you tried the new latte? Uh, wherever. And you're just like, oh, my gosh. The, the rest can be so elusive in a world that's going and going and going like this. And if it's ever happened to you, you know just how profound Jesus' response is. In verse 34, what is it? It's not impatient. It's not angry. There's not despair. But this divine flexibility of compassion and grace. Where he just, he bends with the needs of the people around him. This is why Jesus is better than me, and it's, there's, this, this is not the one reason, believe me. <laughs> there's many. This is one more. Um, last Monday, um, I kind of worked um, with Lorenzo, and I'm, I can just say I'm grateful to the church that you guys um, 
have given me that, that um, the first Monday of every month, I normally get away for just a day of solitude, specifically to ensure that I'm doing ministry in partnership with God, because it's very easy for me to get up here and do this thing and then realize like, oh, that was Ryan today, right? Um, and so I, I normally would do this um, on the first Monday of every single month. Um, and then uh, Aaron got sick, like flu sick, and she's alive now. We're all grateful that she doesn't have it anymore um, and that she's past the, what is it, contagious range. We wouldn't have done that. Um, so we have her quarantine, though, last Monday. And then we have a three-year-old that, for whatever reason, isn't self-dependent yet and can't take care of herself. <laughs> I've shown her how to work the stove, and she just doesn't. <laughs> so anyway, I had, to, I had to work with Lorenzo. I was like, okay, I'm going to have to work on Friday, and I'll, I guess I'm going to have to do prep for sermon stuff, and I'm just, you know, I'll, we're going to have to figure out solitude later on in the week. But the whole day, I was just, like, impatient and angry. Like, and it's like, I've got, like, it's a zombie, you know, snot zombie wife, and sorry, you're more than that to me. <laughs> you always were, but not on Monday. Um, and then I've got Emma, um, who is just, like, the, 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 the tyrannical terror. And... Um, and no compassion, no grace, because not only am I having to give, but I'm also, you're taking, I wanted my rest, you know? I'm with the disciples on the boat. I see the crowd, and I see the deep need, and I'm not with Jesus, like, compassion and a sheep without a shepherd that, that they need to be cared for and led. It's just like, I just wanted to sit with coffee and read my Bible. Like, I wanted to do my thing. And so Jesus displays to us the reality of the pra any practice, whether it is silence and solitude or fasting or Sabbath or the practice of worship on a regular basis, whatever practice it might be in the way of Jesus is specifically made to prepare and shape us into people, into people who are more readily able to give and receive love of God and love to others. And when practices get in the way of that, we're missing the point. 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul writes, we always quote this chapter for weddings, but it's about life in a community together beyond just marriage. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, he says, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if, even if I deliver my body up to be burned, if I let, like, martyrdom, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. If I fast three days a week, and I practice 40 minutes of silence at whatever it might be, I might be a spiritual superhero, but if I am not a person of love, I am so far gone from the way of Jesus. The goal of silence and solitude in any practice of Jesus is not perfectionism for perfectionism's sake. Jesus is not an Apple Watch, not like the little activity rings that some of you have, that you never get a day off. And so it doesn't matter what happened. It doesn't matter. You got in a car wreck, and now you're in a hospital, and it's like, hey, time to stand up. It's like it, it never <laughs> relenting and never stops. Well, you have to keep this strive to get your Jesus achievements or whatever. That is not the point of what Jesus is inviting us into. What he's inviting us into through these habits is a way to form us into people of love where we are, as Paul continues, patient and kind. We're not envious or boastful. We're not arrogant or rude. We don't insist on our own way. We are not irritable or resentful. We don't rejoice at wrongdoing, but we rejoice in the truth. We bear all things. We believe all things. We hope all things. We endure all things. Jesus here in this story in Mark 6 displays to us what he is. He is a person of love, that even when things get in the way of his own desires, he bears all things. 
He's patient and kind. He greets them. He meets them with compassionate love, and he begins to teach them. But notice at the end of our story, what we read, that doesn't mean that Jesus gives up on the importance of prayer and resting communion with the Father. At the end of our uh, reading today in 45 and 46, after the feeding of the 5,000, after he cares for the work in front of him, he still does what? He still gets away. He goes up on the mountain to pray. And so Jesus deals with what's going on. He meets the need. But then it doesn't mean that he just goes, well, the practice is so difficult in a world like this. I'm never going to do it. He finds the flexibility and he bends with it. And so for some of you that are learning, leaning into practicing this, time and place doesn't work for you with silence and solitude. Like Jesus, don't, don't buckle down on the deep need. I said we're resting here today, right? And so the kids have to go or like whatever it might be. Uh, the, the reality is if it does, morning doesn't work, evening doesn't work, the time that you were trying doesn't work, have a flexibility, be patient with the need in front of you, and then just reassess. Lunch break, maybe, before bed, maybe an evening walk, whatever it might be, is a way of entering into the rest, resting in the presence of God. And so that's the reality of rest. And then finally, we move to the test of rest. With the miracle of the feeding of uh, what Mark says is um, uh, 5,000 men, uh, which many would point out that the language he uses of men here is a common way of um, measuring a crowd is that you would count the, the, the men alone. It's, it's not the word for humans or people. It's just men which would lead many as scholars to what we have going on here is upwards of ten to 15,000 people here, not simply five. And so there's layers of what Mark does in telling this story. Again, literary ninja, Jewish meditation literature. It rewards you for chewing on it and asking lots of questions. That doesn't mean you can't just read over it and get the summary, but the more you chew on it, the more you see. And so on the first level, Mark's recounting the historical reality of this story. 15,000 eyewitnesses that as you tell the story of Jesus, this is one that can be verified by people that ate the bread. On the second level, Mark uses loaded language to point to Jesus as a sort of new Moses or a new Elisha who is uh, feeding the people of God with this sacred special bread out in the wilderness. He's also portraying him as the good shepherd of Psalm 23 who sees his people and he makes them lay down in green grass. He leads them behind by the waters of rest. Jesus is the good shepherd. But similarly, there's a third level that I've been chewing on all week, which is why does Luke use the language of a ramos? This is where it happens. Throughout his book so far, he's developed the pattern where when he talks about the quiet place, the solitary place, he's talking about being alone in the presence of God, the silence and solitude stuff. And here, this happens in the quiet place. He could have said simply on the beach. He has language for that. He talks about the grass. Why didn't he just say a grassy place? Luke, in his gospel account, he simply just refers to it as Bethsaida. And, but Luke doesn't mention the disciples getting away for rest. So Mark includes the Aramos language of quiet place and that the disciples are looking for rest. All of that comes together, again, just chewing on this all week is it seems like what Mark's trying to do is he's trying to give us not only a teaching on the historicity of this story and Jesus is a new Moses and good shepherd, but as a sort of story and parable and a reflection on what happens in the quiet place and what happens when we go to a place of rest. And this idea all revolves around the need of the crowds and the inability of the disciples. 
You see, when they find themselves out here in this solitary place, in the wilderness, the Aramos, uh, they are far from uh, Whole Foods, mainly because it doesn't exist yet. <laughs> and even if it does, it's closed, it's late in the day, as they say. And even if Whole Foods did exist, and even if it was open, they say, we don't have 200 denarii, it's uh, almost a year's worth of wages to buy the bread that we would need for all of these people. You see, what they are being confronted with is their deep inability to meet the great need around them. There are 15,000 hungry people, and when they look at what they've got, all they have is a Lunchables. And Judas already drank the Capri Sun. (laughs) In the quiet place, in the desolate place, when things get quiet long enough, we realize we don't have enough. Because we can't do anything about the great need. When we're still, when we find ourselves in the Aramos, whether by will or by the leading of Jesus, what happens is compulsion. Compulsion, the busyness that Hillary of Tours called a blasphemous anxiety to do God's work for him, gives way to awareness. When compulsion becomes awareness, when God can break through the many layers of me doing stuff with which I can protect myself so that I can hear his word and be poised to listen. See, the test of rest happens this way. And you can just break down the story like this. First, Jesus makes us see our need. Jesus makes us see our need. He says, you feed them, implying they need to be fed. And so the first question is, what is the great need? As you look out, maybe it's not 15,000 people, but it might be work and to-do list. It might be tasks. It might be neighbors or neighborhood, city and world. What is the need of the world around you? What is the great need of our day and age? Jesus invites you to stop running around long enough to zoom out and see the great need of you and your own soul, the great need of your neighborhood, of your coworkers, of your city to zoom out and see the deep need. First, Jesus asks us to see the need. Second, Jesus asks us to see and name our inability. Jesus asks them, what do you have to give? Go and see. You see, we go and see, and we find out as we look within ourselves that this need, the great need of our world, the great need of our own souls, is not going to be met by us working harder or smarter. That we are not enough for the great need, not by ourselves. We see this deep need. And then herein lies the test in Mark 3, or Mark 3, the point 3, is that we are invited to bring that need and inability to Jesus, to come with our Lunchables. And the question is, will we come with the vulnerability that what we see in front of us, what we have to give the world with all of its deep need is not enough? And still say, I'm going to trust you with what I have, Jesus, or will we run back to the compulsion continuing to trust the God of work to provide for us because we have set before us with the Lunchables, will we trust in doing or will we trust in the God who seems to be able to do something even when we can't see it? We bring our need, we bring our Lunchables to God. And then in the fourth point, what does Jesus do? Jesus then directs. Before blessing, Jesus directs the disciples to break up the crowds into groups of 50 and 100. The idea being that as he breaks them up, before he's about to send them out, he's going to go, Peter, that group is you. Mark or whoever, this group is for you. Matthew, go take care of them. Mark wasn't one of them, sorry. 
Um, Peter. We'll use Peter instead. I know, I'm sorry. You guys don't care. That's weird for me. <laughs> One of you would have emailed me. Um, <laughs> Some of us are overwhelmed because not only are you trying to feed 15,000 people with Lunchables, but the thing is, is maybe Jesus is inviting you to direct you to simply say, I mean, the question is, God, who are you calling me to serve in partnership with you? Some of us are so compulsive and running around because we feel like we have to take on every need and every cause. We have to be outraged at every injustice. We have to get, donate our time to every single thing that comes in front of us. We have to be fully uh, there for everything, omniscient, all-knowing at all times, connected to everything. And maybe Jesus is inviting you just to go, you know what? These 50 to 100 people would be a good start. Whether that's your coworkers, neighbors, your family, this church community. Some of us give so much more attention being so overwhelmed at the 15,000 people of our world that need care. And maybe Jesus just wants you to focus on two or three people this week. And so as we come with our Lunchables and Jesus points us in the right direction, Jesus takes the little that we have, the little that we feel like could never be enough, and he blesses it. And then he sends us to give what he is now blessed. And what we actually find out is in partnership with Jesus, when we trust and work with him, that the little bit that we had actually leads to there being more than enough. I love that Mark talks about how he points out that they had 12 baskets of leftovers at the end there. That's one for each of the disciples that were complaining that there's no way we're gonna have enough food. Like it's like the, like the big Jesus is just like, you know, winking, you know? You guys were saying, like we don't have enough food? Like there's more than enough leftovers for even you. And I love this language that all are satisfied. And so this is the breakdown of what happens when we go into the test of rest, when we get away from the compulsivity and the ongoing work, is we are required to see our deep need. We see the inability to meet that need. Jesus invites us to set our attention on what we deeply and truly need to give it to, and then it blesses and empowers us to give that. And what we actually find is that not only are we satisfied, we have more than enough, the people that we're meeting have more than enough. And so the great danger as we begin to wrap up of living in a city like Los Angeles is never stopping long enough to hear the deep cry of our hearts. I am not enough for the needs of this world. I'm not even enough for the needs of my own soul. And in fact, I am burning my soul and body out trying. And I'm not sure which way is up anymore. Anne Helen Peterson, the senior culture writer for BuzzFeed News, uh, just uh, over a year ago, lamented the seemingly unfixable state of burnout. She wrote, you don't fix burnout by going on vacation. You don't fix it through life hacks like Inbox Zero or by using a meditation app for five minutes in the morning or doing Sunday meal prep for the entire family or starting a bullet journal. You don't fix it by reading a book. You don't fix it with vacation or an adult coloring book or anxiety baking or the Pomodoro technique or overnight oats. The problem with holistic, all-consuming burnout is there's no solution for it. And she goes on to say, the best way to treat it is to acknowledge it for what it is, not passing ailment, but a chronic disease. Peterson continues over the course of her article to say and offer not truly any substance or treatment of help. Simply because the fact is what she's acknowledging is that the reality of this chronic disease and burnout, of exhaustion and anxiety, that these are simply symptoms of the brokenness of humanity that goes back, again, to the third page of the Bible. 
when humanity, when you and I break off from our partnership with God, of trusting him, being vulnerable with him, resting in vulnerability and peace, and then working in activity and love and justice in this world. When, we, when that gets broken, we end up wreaking havoc on ourselves and on our world as love makes way for chaos, as worship makes place for, for dead work, and where trust of God makes way for distrust of everything and everyone around us, all because we're trying to find something to fit in the place of who God is, whether it's doers, whether it's sexuality, whether it's relationship, whether it's a potential spouse, whether it's your children, whatever it might be, the attention today being on work. Burnout happens when you have something in place of God. And instead of being filled through the breathing rhythm of work and rest and the divine life of God being the thing that motivates you each day, you keep waking up trying to give something that you don't have. And so we end up trapped in this cul-de-sac of would-be gods, moving from house to house, sacrificing ourselves and all we have on that altar, awaiting these fake gods' blessing to earn their favor, to justify our existence, to satisfy us. And Jesus saw on those crowds, and he sees in you and me today this compassion. His, the Greek word is, um, is this word splachnitsomai, which is just such a fun word to say, but it's, it's this word that comes out of, out of the word for your guts, in your bowels, that Jesus at such a deep level sees these people following him across the beach. And whereas the disciples saw annoyance, Jesus' guts were, his heart was broken and torn open because he saw people wandering from thing to thing like sheep without a shepherd. And he sees that same thing within you and me today. And so Jesus comes as the God that humanity knows, who instead of demanding that we go and we feed ourselves to it, that we break us and so that it might be satisfied, that this God is the one who comes to us and does not call for us to break our bodies and pour out our blood and to go, go, go until we burn out. The God of Christianity is the one found in Jesus who allows his body to be broken for his people, to restore the partnership. He allows his blood, not ours, to be poured out for the sake of the chaos that we've brought on this world. And he allows himself to be burnt out and consumed. His death on the cross was Jesus rebuilding the partnership with humanity by allowing all of our chaos and destruction. This machine thing that we all live within, allowing it to crush him so that we might be pulled out. On the night of his death, where we're gonna be in Mark 14 next week, just after that, Jesus uh, lifts up a piece of bread, much like what he just did here in the Aramos place, in the upper room. He takes this bread, just like he did. He looks heavenward and he blesses it and he breaks it. But this time, instead of just simply giving it to the disciples to hand out, he looks at the disciples, he looks at his people and says, this is my body broken for you. See, what's happening here is Jesus is acknowledging that his body is going to stop the churning machinery of a broken world and a broken humanity of sin and chaos and death by throwing himself onto its gears, allowing it to break his body and claim his life so that he might bring us free, that we might find rest in the king who not only died the death that our, our work worship has brought on us, but that we might find this resurrection in life both now and in the age to come. 
So the invitation for you and me today is to take the arm of Jesus, to let him pull you out from this machine of idolatry that continues to break your body and leave you hungry like a sheep without a shepherd to see your great need and inability to satisfy yourself so that you might return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls and allow yourself to be satisfied by the wounded healer.